Hello, and welcome to History Reconsidered, a podcast dedicated to taking a deep dive into historical issues and events and relating them to the modern world. I'm your host, Jarrett Stepman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sumatra Mitra. On this week's episode, we'll be t- talking about great power conflict leading into World War I. We'll discuss why the war is so important to understand and how it relates to our own time when great power conflict appears to be again on the rise. And Sumatra, I think what's important, of course, in building up to this topic is of the lay of the land in, in, mo- in the modern world. I mean, of course, we're at the end of the Cold War. I think there was, uh, I think it was acknowledged that there was only one great power in the world. The United States reigned supreme globally. It was a time of the end of history, as Francis Fukuyama, uh, I think, termed it, this idea that uh, the world would now move into to broad sunlit uplands uh, of the, the kind of world the United States created in that post-Cold War peace. Of course, now we're moving into an era in which there are great powers now challenging the United States position in the world and, and the kind of U.S. global-led order that the U.S. has created. Of course, we have Russia, of course, now is involved in a, a major conflict in Ukraine, and we have maybe an even greater power, which is uh, communist China, which is now now contending with the United States, certainly economically. Of course, you know how much so is not fully known, but also militarily. And so I think this leads to the idea that great power conflict is making a return in this world, unlike how it's been for a very long time. Americans and Westerners are not used to this idea now uh, because it's been so long since we've had major power conflict. Um, and of course, this relates very much to, uh, a, a, I think, a, a major catastrophe of the early 20th century in World War I, which was kind of the end result of a, a long-term uh, great power conflict that ended in catastrophic war. Can you kind of set up for us uh, you know, the world that we now live in kind of relation to the world of the early 20th century. Thanks, Jared. Yeah, it's, uh, it, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, we, we cannot talk about, um, the geopolitical order without actually understanding how unique the situation after the cold war was like, there has never been in human history where one major power was so powerful that it had essentially no rival in the entirety of the globe. Now, obviously, that is short-lived, and people always compare the United States with the British Empire, but the British Empire, even though it was the preponderant power in the globe, it was never a a hegemon without any kind of peer rivals. Um, And that's part of the reason why we... Uh, we have decided today, didn't we, like to have this show dedicated to the First World War because in our conversation of history, we usually talk mostly about the Second World War. Like the Anglo-American history, uh, you know, it's predicated about a fight between good and evil. And obviously when we talk about that, the Second World War comes to the forefront because it is the defining war of last century. And, uh, and, and, And that's all good and true, but... The globe that the, the world that we are living now is qualitatively similar uh, to the pre-First World War situation where, yes, America is still a huge major power, probably the preponderant power of the globe. But for two different reasons, which we are going to talk about more later on in this episode, one, because of its preponderant nature of its power, it is overstretched. And that is always a dangerous situation to be. What Britain found out right in the 1890s were because of 
the burden of you know uh, taking you know safeguarding the sea routes all across the world like doing the policing network in different parts of the globe you know it it the, on one hand the 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 dominant power is overstretched throughout the world and on the other hand because of that overstretch other powers come close by so i think today's topic uh, as we chose the first world war is important because um, you're right. We are re- returning sort of to a to a world of great power competition, but also we are returning to a world which is essentially multipolar and multipolarity is a structural issue. Like it's not something that we decided to be a part of it. It's just how organically, you know, happens. And I think that to know how the world was in those days and how the powers kind of navigated uh, the, the dynamic against each other is very important. It is very important. It's, of course, important as far as World War One goes. Uh, larger discussions on on how to avoid such a calamity as World War One as well. I mean, that's I think it was uh, historian Fritz Stern who called it the first calamity of the 20th century, the calamity from which all other calamities sprang, uh-huh. and how that conflict, the great power conflict of the 19th century, which actually had times of certainly in in Europe, uh, great moments of peace and uh, cooperation, uh, even between the powers, how it led to. First, the, the greatest war at that time in, in all of human history, and then, of course, another great war uh, shortly thereafter. And I think a lot of the discussion is how now can, in this, this new age of great power conflict, can we avoid the kind of bloodbath uh, that led to the destruction of many peoples and a complete uh, reshaping of the world? Now, one could say that at the end of that, that 20th century, something positive came out of it. Uh, but a lot of people died and uh, a lot of pe- a lot of things were destroyed, a lot of wealth. And one could say even the West itself has never fully, truly recovered uh, from these twin calamities, World War One, World War Two, based on this crisis. And so, you know, there's a lot to learn uh, from the lead up to World War One uh, and a lot to think about as far as trying to prevent uh, another great catastrophe happening now. We don't know what that's going to look like. And the idea that just because we've had such a long-term period of peace, relative peace among the great powers of the world, that that's something that's going to continue forever, that that's something that it's simply impossible for two great powers to go to war in the 21st century because of military strength, because of nuclear weapons. I think there were a lot of people in the lead up to World War I who also thought that that was simply impossible that that was not going to happen between these great powers. There was simply too much to lose uh, for them to end up in a major, major uh, military conflict in Europe. And of course it did happen and it reshaped everything. Um, And I think that's an an important element to discuss when thinking about World War I is how to avoid uh, this great calamity. I think, I think you're absolutely right. I think uh, the, one of the things that people, you know, usually don't tend to comprehend is because, you know, the, because of the structure of geopolitics, um, often the actors might change, but the game essentially remains the same, right? I mean, before the First World War, the reason the First World War is so important is because before the First World War, the last major great power war was the Napoleonic War, which was essentially kind of like a total war across the continent. Now, Europe as a continent is known for its belligerence, right? I mean, it, the history of Europe is one of belligerence. Um, but even then, um, the way the First World War was different than um, every other conflict before was on one hand, it showed before that, like when, when two great powers went to war with each other, it was two essentially two regimes battling. So if a great power conquers the other one, 
there are no total war going on in between that. Like the people who are residing in that region say like, fine, we are just under a new overlord. You know, I mean, my, my lifestyle isn't really changing. The idea of this, this national interest and conflict kind of like was very deterministic when it comes to the First World War. So that was a very different situation compared to, say, the Crimean War in 1856 between Russia on one hand and, you know, Britain and France on the other. Right. I mean, they, the, the people in Crimea didn't really care about, you know, who was fighting against whom, essentially. Um, the First World War changed that. Right. And the second thing, because of this totalizing effect of the war, you know, the entire cream, like you're absolutely right when you mentioned that, you know, we have not yet recovered um, essentially from the effects of the First World War, like the cream from poets to scientists. Um, they just, you know, it, it, there was this one study which showed on a, on a, on a selection scale of uh, people dying in the First World in the trenches, the, the elite, like the Oxbridge graduates were overwhelming. You know, because in those days, leadership meant you have to go and fight in the trenches like Black Adder, like memorialize that thing anyway. Uh, so that's one thing. The, the entire order sort of collapsed. Like there were like five empires before that, which just got destroyed after the First World War. And that is a change which is unthinkable in modern times. Like imagine the entire global order just completely changes and the way of life is evaporated in front of your eyes. You know, it, it's it's easy to see from a detached historical perspective. Like we are not even talking about the superficial effects of like modernity, like tanks and modern weapons, like people like strategies and tactics of people like massing in front of the Gatling guns and machine guns and just dying in mass. You know, uh, those things happened before the American Civil War, for example, um, was the first modern war in history. So but uh, but but that war taken on a grand continental level scale is something which we cannot even think about. So those are very new things that we saw in the First World War, which no one ever saw before. But on the other hand, some of those dynamics were extremely similar. And it could be, you know, it, it's very similar to now. So when people say that, you know, just because we have got nuclear weapons doesn't mean that we are never going to have a great power war. You know, that negates the entirety of idea of this balance of power between and how that might collapse, you know, because of war hysteria, because of idealism, because of you know, propaganda, you know, those are the things which are very similar and that has been similar throughout ages, you know? So I think, I think the unique thing about the First World War is because, uh, is, is how different it is in some ways, but also how similar it is to us. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny, you know, you talking about how there are other things that intervene as far as ideology, as far as belief. I mean, it's funny in the lead up to World War One, I, I uh, you know, there's this there's this book that was written by this this uh, kind of sociologist Norman Angel. He's this kind of economist. Wrote called the Great Illusion, which was his argument was effectively that because of economics, and of course there was a huge amount of economic change that happened in the 19th century. I mean, this is when the, the full kind of industrial and capitalist revolution had taken place. His argument was simply that wars were so costly that a modern state. It is irrational for a modern state to engage in, in any yeah. kind of great power war that would be so destructive that it is simply illogical. He wrote that book in 1909. Of course, it was it came with a great amount of fanfare. See, and a lot of people took this to say, well, look, it's uh, you know, it's impossible. There, a great war is not going to happen. But I think when uh, there was one German general who this idea was introduced to, and he said simply, you know, I'm a general, not an economist. 
And, and I think that <laughs> the idea that that simply because we're so rich very and we're German. so powerful is very German. Um, and it, it kind of gets to like there are other ideas that are intervening beyond just simple economics. And, and yes, obviously, great wars are monumentally destructive economically. But there's no question that the shape up of, of how a, a war may conclude, uh, it, there may be some net total benefit that countries are looking at that are go beyond just simply the bottom line. I think that's what has to be taken into consideration when you consider the kind of great power cleavages that exist, certainly in the modern world, as they as they did uh, before World War One. So I think that we can be sometimes lulled into a sense of security because we believe that the world is now so deeply interconnected that the economies are so interconnected that that any kind of actual real conflict on a mass scale isn't possible and can't happen again, I think that can change very quickly and catastrophically and in a way that sometimes can blindside people, as I think it did blindside many uh, in World War I. There was, I think many thought that any such war would be simply impossible, uh, and that wasn't the case. And as you said, led to a catastrophic loss of life especially even though even among the elite. And I think that that is something that is worth stressing in the case of many of these countries that fought that conflict, how many of the elites of society went to war. I think there's this uh, this idea that, you know, of course, there's kind of ideas about World War One. It was, you know, lions led by donkeys. And that uh, I think there are some people even have this idea of rich man's war, poor man's fight, but that really wasn't the case. The elite, regardless of you know their ability or not ability, were expected to go and they were expected to fight and oftentimes ended up on the front line. And societies sustained a huge amount of, uh, incredible amount of casualties, especially when you talk about Germany and France, Great Britain. France in particular, I think, suffered uh, perhaps more than anyone, even though they were a victor in the war, uh, their society, I think, uh, demographically was completely devastated in a way that I think most even Americans don't fully understand, even the American Civil War, which was so catastrophic, uh, the level of casualties for a country that didn't have the same population as the United States uh, was absolutely incredible. Uh, I think somebody compared it to if uh, if you just wiped out the entire population of Minnesota, that's the comparison of what French ca casualties were like during the war. And of course, had monumental demographic implications well into the future, you know, well into World War II. In fact, I think the French population was more or less static between World War I and World War II, which is an incredible thing. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the lion set by donkeys thing is interesting because that sort of was taken over by, you know, in, in those days, there was a lot of rising Marxist um, intellectuals, in, even in the West, for example. And that was kind of like taken over by that idea that, oh, look, these are just normal people dying um, because of rich people fighting against each other. It, I mean, uh, technically, yes, but also that's not the whole truth. I mean, first of all, the generals who were leading the countries in war were frankly not experienced to fight a modern war anyway because they have not seen any kind of modern war in history. The last big war that happened in the European continent before that was the Crimean War and the Franco-Prussian War, which was very different uh, in both style and casualties compared to the First World War. It wasn't a total war, 
Russia, by the way, we forget, was the first country to do a general mobilization uh, before the First World War. Like We're going to talk about the causes of the World War soon anyway, but... I think that's one thing which people just just you know when when everyone just blames Germany for its for its you know uh, invasion like it was the first conflict of the first world war between Germany and Russia was on German soil when Russia had a general mobilization and tried to invade uh, parts of East Prussia uh, so the modern generals they had no idea how to use in face of you know chemical warfare for example um, how to how to face how to not have like a bunch of men just go and mo get mowed down in front of a machine gun. Um, you know, they were cavalry charging, you know. Uh, so it, it's, a, it's a very different scenario, but they literally had no idea what they were doing. It was, they were trying to find out uh, in the course of the war about how to change the strategy and the tactics. Um, and the second thing is uh, the cream of society is not just the generals, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's the middle class. It's the, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's people who are, intellectuals, people who are working as engineers or doctors or, you know, poets or teachers, you know, they all have to go and because of their, their education level, they were put in positions of leadership. And because of those days and the way society was designed, you know, it was the masculine virtue of leading your men in the front. You know, they were the first ones often who died disproportionately. And I'm not saying like, you know, life is life. Like it doesn't matter like what their job is, but the cumulative effect in a society of having your entire upper middle class intellectuals wiped off is something which is unmeasurable at times. Um, we have no idea that how you know Europe would have developed if those people bloomed and had and joined the workforce. We just never would find out. And the second point you make about this economic point, which I'm which I want you to talk more as well, because that's a very good point. That's the that's an idea that never dies. You know, Steven Pinker, for example, says like, oh, you know, we have this economic independent dependence with, with, with other countries. That means like, you know, um, because of more trade, we won't have war. And, you know, the, the McDonald's uh, theory of, of democratic peace and all that. And I always remind people that the two countries which had largest amount of trade before the First World War was England and Germany. Absolutely. And yeah, and, and, and that's and that kind of defies logic. You know, the economics is usually, if not all the times, trumped by politics. Politics is on, 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 in a level which is much higher than economic determinants. So I think I think that's a that's a theory that for some reason never dies. <laughs> I don't really know why. <laughs> but but yeah, I think I think that's a very good point. It's it's understandably appealing because, of course, the idea like, look, we're, we're and maybe it's something that also I think kind of appeals to the Anglo-American mind. Hey, look, we're all getting rich together. Why are we going to get involved in some stupid war? Where we're shooting and, and, and killing each other. You know, let's just, uh, you know, settle our agreements, uh, you know, man to man. And we'll get back to the real business, uh, which is business. And I yeah. think that's a very Anglo-American idea, and why, which is why I think sometimes Americans in particular sometimes don't understand other peoples of the world, especially Russians or people with a different mentality. They simply don't understand. Of course, we come off as either naive or perhaps more sinister because people think that we're always operating. Everything we're doing is operating to kind of get the other guy and, and, and put him down when really a large part of the Anglo-American ethos is let's get, all get rich together. It just always seems like we're the ones who are the richest, and that's why I think people oftentimes – uh, get get angry and and think that well something sinister must be really going on. Um, I think it, it, as as you said, it is very much important to to 
discuss the casualties and the destruction that took place on all levels of society in Europe, even, even, I mean, even for the victors, it was yeah. astounding. And I think France, especially the, the American reputation of France, of course, is, you know, the World War II experience of how the French military behaved and operated in World War II, of course, being destroyed by the Germans. But when you really consider the amount of sacrifice that the French went through as a society with the amount of people who were killed and, and the amount of their industry that was destroyed, their land, which, of course, was soaked in blood. Um, there was a there's a, actually a really good, great book called uh, Pyrrhic, Pyrrhic Victory by uh, a historian named Doherty. I thought there was this actually this this great passage. I'm actually going to read this passage. I think it's really important, yeah. especially for Americans to understand what the casualties were really like. Because again, we don't have much of this experience, especially in the United States, of right. casualties on this scale. He wrote, "To the measure to measure what we have undergone. Suppose that the war had taken place in America and that you had suffered proportionately. You'd have had four million of your men killed and ten million wounded out of a population of 110 million in 1922." All your industries from Washington to Pittsburgh would have ceased to exist. All your coal mines would have been ruined. That is what the war would have meant to you. That is what it has meant to us. And you can understand that why in the years following this war, the French were, first of all, a, a society that was very much damaged uh, from top to bottom by the results of that war and very much reluctant to get into another war in which the early days of that war, there are, of course, great campaigns of uh, mobile warfare that unfortunately ended quite catastrophically. Why they ended up with a much more conservative approach leading up into World War II yeah. and ended up with, of course, fighting the last war and getting walled by, by Nazi Germany. And so to a certain extent, learning you know the wrong lessons from the previous war, but very understandable ones, given what happened to the society in those years. And so I, I think that, you know, that's something that's always worth remembering is, you know, when we think about World War One, this last war, I mean, you, you take certain lessons from these past conflicts, but sometimes, right. you know, this, those lessons are wrong, too. Those lessons don't don't apply anymore. Uh, but nevertheless, a major war on these these the scale changes a society sometimes, sometimes permanently or, or certainly well into the future. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, I, I, I totally think um, part of the reason, I mean, we're probably going to discuss that more later on anyway. Um, the reason why the French were so um, adamant about the Versailles Treaty is because of the suffering that they endured, that they thought the Anglo-Americans don't really understand. You know, we always talk about the First World War, about the number of casualties that we had. But the war happened on French soil. And you're absolutely right from the from the from the paragraph that you read. Um the amount of destruction of their industries, um, the amount of destruction of their way of life, uh, the, the the entire soil is completely scorched, you know, the, the coal mines completely burned out. You know, those are something which they understood and they took to heart. Like they saw it um, from uh, their perspective as pure German aggression. Now, obviously, that's not the case. And I think this is a good time to kind of like segue to the causes of the First World War. Um, the, the, I, and I, I want you to start with that. Um, I think from my, my idea, like I, I would imagine like the fundamental cause, what you would think would be the one that's the most common, that it was German expansionism, um, which led to the first world war. Do you, do you, do you think that's, that's a, that's a decent way 
uh, to kind of like argue about the causes of the First World War? Or what what are your opinions? I, I mean, I, I I think it is among the list of causes, it probably is the the biggest cause. And I think, look, there's a lot of, again, there's a lot of argument and debate over what the cause is that has been going on for a century. I do think that German expansionism and aggression was a, a big trigger for the war happening. There were just a lot of other moving parts at the same time that made that German aggression burn into something larger than maybe even it should have been. And so I, I, I do, I do buy the idea that German aggression was a major cause of the war becoming what it became. Uh, but it, it, you know, of course, there's always that, you know, it, it takes two to, to to make an accident. And in the case of Europe, there were, it's like, you know, there were seven people playing chicken, and <laughs> and and so, and they all decided, you know, variously, well, they're 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 not going to divert their course. And I think that's what ultimately led to the scale of the conflict and the catastrophe that they had been playing chicken for a long time in the late 19th century. They had been playing chicken over and over. And finally, somebody somebody crashed and they all started yeah. to crash and there was a major pileup. And when that pileup, uh, on the conclusion, a lot of those uh, participants no longer existed or, or were completely changed uh, by the experience. So you so, so you you fall firmly on the AJP Taylor side of the debate, <laughs> like you know it's it's a it's a breakdown of balance of power. A, a, a little bit. I mean, I, I'm I'm curious about your thoughts about this because again, there there are many different theories as to you know why this ultimately happened. You seem to be a little more cautious about the the Taylor side of things. I'd like to hear your perspective. No, I think I think I agree with you. I mean, I I obviously have a little bit of bias about AJP Taylor. I think he's right about everything, but that's <laughs> that's, that's just uh, like the geeking out part of it. But no, um, I think the 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 cause that was popular immediately after the war was the one by the German historian Fritz Fischer, who said that like it is essentially German, you know, expansionism. I, from a historical perspective, I find it difficult to pin the blame on one single actor, as you rightly mentioned, like there were so many different actors that happened, but also um, like Taylor's idea or, or even like, um, you know, the sleepwalker, the book by um, Christopher Clark, uh, both of those books sort of have this structuralist, uh, you know, concept of the, of, of the breakdown of balance of power. So essentially uh, Chris Clark mentions, for example, like Europe was hurtling towards war anyway, because of this two, um, uh, different rival blocks, which was forming, and they were trying to one up each other. No one wanted to actually go to war, but no one also wanted the other person to see that they're weak. So, and that kind of like started this spiral, um, which which is a very dangerous situation given the world that we live in now. For example, um, you know, it's even now, you know, it, the, with a war going on in Ukraine, it's a matter of you know a spiral, like how much we want to show our resolve versus how much we actually understand the other person's resolve. So, I think that's a uh, very interesting point. Um, I do, however, think, and this is my personal synthesis, sort of, um, like I, I completely negate the, the Marxist-Lenin's idea of uh, imperialism leading to First World War. I think that's a, I, I, I don't think that, you know, that's historically accurate. I think the other two theories, which I would, um, I would attribute the world, the war to is the Fisher's theory of German expansionism and the Taylor's theory of breakdown of balance of power. And I think 
I think mine is more of a synthesis in a way. Like if, if, if someone comes and tells me what do I think about how the war started, I would imagine saying, yes, on one hand, it was German expansionism, but Germany wasn't trying to be sort of uh, like, a, like a hegemon across Europe. I think what happened, and I think, and here's, I'm, I'm probably mixing Fisher and Taylor's perspectives together, is from the German perspective, it was about German expansion in, in the East, right? I mean, we Anglo-Americans tend to see both the First World War and the Second World War as a war between the continental Europeans and the Anglo-American freedom, right? I mean, but, but if we actually kind of put focus on where the wars always start, you know, it always started between German expansionism in the East and Russia trying to resist that, right? I mean, in the First World War, that happened. Now, we, given that, and, I, and I'm talking from the British perspective here, like Britain was sort of like chain-ganged into this war by France because France knew after the Franco-Prussian War that it was not capable of balancing Germany on its own. Like, there is this huge new power in the middle of Europe with the amount of um, industrial capacity that is not to be balanced by one single power in the entirety of the continent. It has to form an alliance. It has to, and, and from the German perspective, they see the exact same thing. Like they are trying to prop up the Austro-Hungarians because even though they are nominally a huge power, they're just not capable of balancing Russia on their own, right? So overall, it was about German expansionism in the East and Britain and France said like, you know, we don't, we don't want Germany to be like the hegemon in the European continent. So essentially we're just gonna, go in support of Russia and the Franco-Russian, you know, alliance. Now, I, so I kind of like, I mean, my opinion would be like a synthesis of both. Like, yes, it was German expansionism, but not against us. Like Germany was doing what Germany always had, <laughs> always did, you know, expanding, trying to expand in the East and Russia trying to resist that. And we kind of see the same dynamic even now between European Union and NATO, like trying to expand to the East and Russia trying to push them back. Um, whether we ought to take part in that is a question of, you know, as a different question, but I think I think the historical, you know, rhyming we can see is still there even after hundreds, hundreds of years. Yeah, it, it's interesting you know, bringing up the Eastern Front in particular because it is for 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 Westerners, it's not thought of as much. We think of the Western Front. I think yeah. primarily we think of the conflict between Germany and France and Britain. Of course, the later entrance uh, of the United States, but how much that was a part of the war. I mean, Russia was uh, a power that. Certainly, if you look at just by population, was far greater than all the other great yeah. powers in Europe. I mean, by by many magnitudes. Now, of course, it was a society at that point uh, that was not industrialized, that had little infrastructure, that had massive issues with mobilization and their armies. Yeah. So, of course, it had huge weaknesses that were very much exposed by the war. But a lot of the German mindset was that fear of Russian power, because when you just when you look at the raw data, um, it, they, they were an immense power. And I think that that wasn't quite realized during World War One. It was realized more fully in World War Two. And of course, there was an underestimation because of the performance of the Russian military in World War One. This idea that, well, they're back where they, you know, they can't fight their mess. You know, that proved not to be true. And I think that those fears were always there, that the Russian bear that and to a certain extent, it makes, you know, the U.S. and, and Russia kind of like those, those kind of twin poles, the, the two greatest powers uh, among the great powers the, with the U.S., a, a big population and industrialization and Russia, just enormous population, huge amount of territory and resources. Um, 
and yeah. the, and and Russia's role was was critical in the in the, the the German mindset. And I think that, of course, the Russian involvement in the war was very different from the ethos of Great Britain, the United States. I think there was a great amount of misunderstanding that took place between East and West. Whereas a lot of the narrative in certainly in America is that you know we're fighting uh, militarism, we're fighting uh, you know authoritarianism as opposed to to liberty in the West. And I don't think the dynamic was the same between Russia and Germany. I don't, I don't think that uh, Western Americans and, and British fully understood that dynamic in the way that the Germans and Russians did. Yeah, I think you raised a very important point about Russia being the, the major power post-Napoleon. I think one of the reasons why we always try and underestimate uh, how the Central European powers saw Russia was because their lost memory of Russia in major war was beating back Napoleon and conquering Paris, right? I mean, so Russia was, after 1815, which was exactly 100 years before the First World War, um, uh, we, we kind of saw Napoleon had this huge army invade Russia, made one of the biggest mistakes that any European power makes, you know, whenever they try and move east is to try and conquer this region, which even the Mongols couldn't conquer and pacify. You know, it, it's that big, it's that resourceful, it's that fast and barren and dangerous to, you know, be around. Um, so Napoleon went there, got defeated, came back, never really recovered from that. And before that, it was France, which was the biggest power of Central Europe, trying and dominating Prussia and Austria and kind of like balancing with, with Britain throughout. I mean, Britain, even though it was the biggest navy, was the biggest power in the world, it didn't have the resources to go and, you know, defeat France in, in, in the continent. And it couldn't have done that without France losing to Russia, right? So the German and the Prussian and the Austrian idea of Russia was this huge power. Uh, what they didn't realize is, yes, it was it was a kind of like a husk. It was, you know, externally, it was like, you know, all this pomp and splendor and this, you know, powerful, but inside, like you, 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 you absolutely rightly mentioned, Industrialization in Germany, um, for example, in in 1914 was years in advance, decades in advance of Russia. Um, that didn't negate the fact that Russia has this huge manpower, which it could industrialize in the before the Second World War. And Germany found out uh, to its own detriment how dangerous that could be. Um, but this idea about Russia being the huge power, which was underestimated before the First World War, and again, the threat of Russia growing was something that we tend not to look for. And again, you're right, you know, the, the cultural history and strategic idea in Russian mindset is very different from how the Anglo-Americans see you're, we, you're, you're exactly right. It's our culture. We are going to do business. You know, we are a seafaring nation, both Britain and America, going to do business. As long as the sea routes are fine, as long as there is no massive war going on, no big hegemons, we are fine with each other. The continent is very different. The European continent is, it's, it's you know, any power which rises there, whether it's France or Germany or Russia, th th their, their mindset about uh, balance of power in the region is about buffer zones. You know, something which we don't really have to think about. We've got oceans as moats on, you know, two sides, right? I mean, it's, it's, it, we try and, try and understand, you know, Russia and think that they're paranoid about, you know, uh, balance of power, but from their perspective, we don't have to be paranoid because we are guarded by the sea, right? So I think that's a I think that's a very key dynamic, which um, which is kind of similar to even now 
about how we are underestimating how the European balance of power sort of plays out. Yeah, you know, it's always something you always have to try to get into the mindset of your opponents. I mean, it's like, you know, like one of the, the first, uh, you know, lessons of, of war is get into the mindset of understanding who you're, you're going up against or who you, who you will ally with. And I think in the case of the, the West and Russia, I think there's a huge amount of long-term misunderstandings about how the world works based of course on, on large parts of history and geography. And, and I think that sometimes, especially Westerners, we, we, we tend to think that the whole world should be like us and should think like us and that that would be good and the whole world would be great because of that. There are a lot of people around the world who, of course, resent that, especially especially Russians who think of their own culture and civilization as a great civilization of the world and can't understand you know, why we would want to change that or why we want to tra- transform that. And so we do have to understand that when, when dealing with a country like a Russia, that they do have a different mindset than Americans, that their their national existence and the creation of their country was very different from our right. own. And understanding that so that there aren't mistakes made in, in some of our communications with each other and what we signal to one another of what our true intentions are, which, of course, could lead into greater conflicts between us, including military ones. I think I think there's a, this beautiful movie that came out in 2002. It's called The Russian Ark. If you haven't seen that, I, I highly recommend no, I everyone to watch. So it's so the movie is unique in a way. Like it's it's done with a handheld camera, which just walks around the Saint Petersburg Palace and sort of like meets different characters from various eras of Russian history, from Peter the Great to you know um, you know Catherine the Great and all that people, and kind of like ends in 1913, where the guy who was holding the camera asks the guy who was leading around, like, why did you stop here? And they say, we want to stop here because this is where time was elegant, and after that, you know, everything just got destroyed. Um, so this is where I'm going to stop and I'm not going to go out of this palace. And I think that's a beautiful movie. And I kind of agree with the Russian perspective there. Like they haven't gotten over the fact of we, we, we got over in some ways from the first world war and second world war and had this, you know, social development. They didn't, you know, they got stuck in 1913 and what they faced after the fall of Tsar was incredibly worse than what we had in 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 England and America, um, they had the Bolshevik Revolution, which kind of like drove them back. I mean, they had the greatness, they had the hegemony in the eastern parts of Europe, but their lifestyle, the way of life, the culture, the, the beautiful Russian culture that gave us, you know, ballet and all that, you know, the, the, whatever we think of Russia as a great power, contribution to culture is immense. That and it's unpayable in a way, um, and I think they. And because of that tragedy that they faced post-First World War, I kind of feel sympathetic to the way the Russians see the world. And I, I think they haven't gotten over the fact that, you know, those days are gone. Yeah, I, I think you're very much right about that. And of course, it's right to remember, especially what happened to Russia during the First World War, that when Russia loses a war, they oftentimes end up in revolution immediately yeah. thereafter. And you don't know what the end result of that's going to be in a country like Russia. And of course, 1917, it ended up with a Bolshevik revolution that right. I mean, changed world history that ended up with an incredible bloodbath led to the rise of Stalin and, and maybe drove events toward, toward World War II. Um, and of course, the, the, the large global conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union thereafter. And so right. something that, you know, something to remember today as we're now dealing with Russia is now involved in another great war 
in Ukraine, which they see as another, you know, for them, great patriotic war, you know, what's going to be a result win or lose for Russia as a country? What's going to be the end of this? Yeah. Even if they lose this, what, what does that mean for us? Like, what are they going to be there if this, if everything goes south for them, what's right, Russia right. going to be like? And that's very much important to know because it, it might be, it might be good for us and it might be ultimately very bad. And I think that's something to a lesson to be taken from the end stages of, of World War One. I. I mean, I think the Germans were very happy to see the Russians get knocked out of the war. You know, I, there, there, of course, have been contentions that the Germans unleashed Lenin onto Russian society. I think there's there's some there's some merit to that. Of course, they ended up paying a price in World War Two for for some of those decisions. And the world, I think, paid a great price for the fact that Russia fell into uh, communist tyranny thereafter. So it is very important to understand this when it when it comes to to Russia and their mindset that if a war goes very south for them, things could be changed, I think, quite dramatically within the country. I think the German perspective makes logical sense. If you see your Germany and you see that you have a power to the to the side of your Austro-Hungarian Empire, which is nominally a big power. But it's also kind of like Yugoslavia on in a greater scale. Like all the, you know, the parts that makes the empire is just all broken up and they don't have any kind of unity. They're not modern and advanced. And Germany, because of the, again, A.J.P. Taylor wrote that beautiful sentence where like, you know, the uh, France and uh, Russia was dwarfed by the coal mines of Rohr in Germany, which is very true. Like the industrialization that happened in Germany dwarfed every other country uh, in the world. And they had the manpower to do that. They had the money to do that. And they were extremely resourceful and efficient as a society. Um, so from the German perspective, they knew that they would not be able to sustain uh, a two-front war, which they found out. And, and once America joined the war with like 10,000 people coming every single day, you know, it's it's it. The war was lost anyway. Like Germany had no chance, even after their 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 second offensive in 1918, um, they had no chance of winning the war once the American manpower started pouring in the continent. Um, but from their perspective, the easy way to knock Russia out was short-sighted. Now, you know, from the from the distance of history, we can say that how dangerous it was. But also, you know, they understood that if if Russia has a revolution, if we unleash Lenin, you know, send him through the seal train and all that kind of stuff. Um, we would at least be able to concentrate on one side, and which then nearly, very nearly knocked us out uh, before America went in. I think the key part here to discuss is um, what were we thinking? Like, what was the what was the fundamental um, causality between Britain or America to join the war? I mean, I because Britain had a, exactly a similar situation before when Germany um, invaded Denmark in 1860s, uh, but we didn't join the war. But why was Belgium and France that important um, that we thought that we need to stop Germany from having a hegemony on Western Europe? Um, I think that could be a great discussion. But what are your brief thoughts um, about that? Uh, I, I think that is I think it's a very serious discussion. Of course, you know, something that was highly debatable for, for Americans was highly debatable, which is should we even enter into World War One period? I, there was a lot of sentiment very strongly at the time against entering the war. There was a long-term American ethos, you know, don't get involved in entangling conflicts, especially not in the old world between great powers. And look, the, the history between the United States and Great Britain was at that point very much fraught. The, many Americans thought, well, why are we fighting on their behalf? Yeah. It's something that's not often talked about now. People talk about 
uh, people evading the draft during the Vietnam War. Actually, there was a higher percentage of people evading the draft uh, in World War One in the U.S. That's very interesting, uh, yeah. Uh, compared to the Vietnam War, it was very unpopular. Many people voted for President Woodrow Wilson on the, the assumption that he kept us out of war. That was a big campaign message. And then, of course, got us into war, which turned many people against him and made a lot of his supporters very angry because the assumption was, look, we don't want to get involved in this giant conflagration in Europe that's going to take American lives. And for what? For what ultimately is going to happen? And I think, especially in the U.S., I think there was a lot of sentiment after the war when it had concluded what what exactly do we do we do that for? Things have just kind of returned as as they were be, as they were before. And for for Americans, of course, for American liberals in particular, there was this idea that well, we get involved in this war, we can make it the war to end all wars. We'll we'll yeah. find create a lasting peace in the right. world that'll last forever. So even though we don't really like war and we weren't really prepared for this war, well, if we got to fight it, we'll do it, and we'll make just sure we'll just make sure that wars don't happen ever again. And that will be that. And I think that was certainly, I think, the mentality from a lot of American liberals is that this, yeah, we have to be militaristic now, but if we do it now, we won't have to do it later. And of course, you know, you know, not even a, really just a generation later, end up in an even greater war uh, following this one. Um, but I, I think there, of course, look, there, there are other issues of consideration as far as the conflict between the U.S. and Germany, of course, the long term talks about, of course, the U.S. involvement with Great Britain and the Entente, of course, sending supplies their way. And, of course, the unrestricted submarine warfare that Germany, I think, maybe even had to do because they were desperate. Um, they were desperate because they were in a war that they felt maybe they were losing. That, of course, U.S. wealth going uh, toward the Entente was was a danger to their national survival. Um, part drew in the United States into, a, into the war. And, of course, I think a, a little bit of diplomatic fumbling uh, with the Zimmerman note to Mexico and trying to, I, I, you know, this perplexing idea of bringing in Mexico into the war against the United States, which seems a, a rather silly in the in the long term. Um, so I think there were reasons for the U.S. very much to get involved in the war. As far as well, would have been better from from the perspective of history if the U.S. and and U.K. had just never been involved. There are now so many moving parts afterward. It's hard to say one way or the yeah. other. Would it have been good if Germany simply became the dominant power on the continent? You know, you say, well, maybe Nazism wouldn't have happened, but I don't think there's any guarantee that's the case. I think a lot of the ideas that kind of were part of the Third Reich. I mean, a lot of those ideas came from you know World War One generals Ludendorff and others, and I think they were part of German society. You know, even outside of just the experience of World War One. So maybe you just end up with an even stronger Germany that goes into the same direction that That's Nazi right. Germany did. But except now it's much more powerful and it controls all of continental Europe before the war happens. Uh, and that's a totally different animal from what we fought during the actual war, too. So I think there's a lot of reasons to think that, you know, the U United States and Great Britain had a reason to align themselves with France in that war, ultimately, when it came to an ultimate showdown between those powers, and to ensure that that Germany did not become the dominant power in Europe, I think I think that that's an interesting point. Um, the the key question that people often ask is whether Germany would have prevailed uh, and dominated the entirety of Europe without Britain and U.S. joining. And I I agree with you. I think they would have. You know, they 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 knocked Russia out from the Eastern Front. They without British and American manpower and resources, 
Um, it is highly doubtful that France would have prevailed even holding Germany back. So we probably would have, I mean, overall, yes, there are questions whether we should have stayed out, but I think a strong case can be made that uh, we had to support the smaller of the two sides because we wanted to have that at least a stable balance. Now, one might argue that it didn't really help anyway because Germany had found, you know, Germany ultimately found a way to dominate Europe with the European Union um, without the military parts of it, and we kind of like helped them create that. So it's it's essentially like a like a different, but that's a that's a whole different Peter Hitchens, Pat Buchanan type of argument that we probably have to like dedicate a, a whole episode. I think one thing which I need, which we need to um, like discuss is uh, uh, how much are the dangers of uh, war hysteria and mass media and propaganda and, and idealism that was similar before the First World War that's similar now. I think that's something which we uh, which we need to talk about. I think from my perspective, I think because of the the massive development of radios and you know mass media of propaganda that we saw in those days, it changed the way public opinion was um, influenced before the First World War compared to say uh, during the concert of Europe. Like during the concert of Europe, there were a handful of elites who you know, had, had to decide on the, on the national interest. And they kind of, uh, th it was easy for them to come to a compromising situation compared to when you have the entirety of the country constantly being under the barrage of, of this propaganda that, you know, there are this vile Huns who are trying and killing and raping, uh, you know, a bunch of people. I think, I think that's, um, so I, my, I mean, when people talk about realism and compromise in foreign policy, I think that's a thing that people don't really discuss much is the way mass media changed and whether public opinion in a democracy under the constant influence of this kind of mass media is incompatible with a more narrow, restrained and amoral foreign policy. So I think the First World War is key in that way. Like we realized that, yes, the, the old world is gone. You know, we have to, even if we have to have a kind of amoral realist foreign policy, we cannot um, uh, we cannot just ignore the public opinion because they are going to be a factor. I think that's that's a very good point you make. And I, I think that's very important in the cases of countries like, especially the United States, which has, I think, even from even from its beginning, and maybe this is a challenge to, to realists to a certain extent, um, from its beginning had a sort of almost, you could say, a messianic mission in the world. I mean, this is, yeah. the United States was created differently it was it was an exceptional nation created of course of the events of the american revolution we we are we are, are at least partially a creedal nation now even though in our foreign policy we've often simply acted in our own self-interest i i think we always do even when we have larger you know ideological or philosophical goals in mind right but it's hard to sell the american people on well we just have to fight this war because well if we don't have xyz resources and if this this country dominates another it'll be worse for our bottom line our economy and for americans i don't think that's a very difficult case to be made to americans right. in our experience i mean wars and and to mobilize peoples to get involved in what are great national wars especially in a more democratic nation which many of these you know great nations of the world now are it's hard to do that without saying you know this is a crisis for your very existence uh, if, if you lose, it's the end of the world as you know it. 
and you now you have to fight and you know you have to fight a war to save democracy i think that's a, that's a very appealing thing and for for americans as often has been the the kind of key to you know getting american um, united states in particular to mass mobilize in wars is the the idea of the existential crisis that's before right. us and i think in those cases countries like the democracies fight very ferociously and end yeah. up in huge massive total wars uh because they are existential and because you're fighting not just uh, for your liege, you're fighting for your neighbor, you're fighting for everybody around you. That's and right. I, I think that that leads to great conflicts like World War One. I. I mean, you, you really saw the, you know, maybe even the first time in history, I mean, you could say the Napoleonic Wars kind of led in this direction, but whole nations being mobilized right. against one another. And then, of course, that leading to casualty levels that were absolutely unheard of, especially when you combine that with newer inventions of war, which now have, are even more extreme yeah. on that end where war, you know, that the, the war is so deadly uh, if, if it's taken to its ultimate extreme that the, the kind of death and destruction is I think unimaginable to modern people. That doesn't mean that it, it can't happen. And I think that's why, you know, just because we can't right now imagine a war on that scale yeah. doesn't mean it can't and won't happen. You know, what our world will look like after that. I don't think anybody really knows. Um, but Preventing that, of course, as we kind of started the podcast, is, is so critically important and not leading us into, I think, this idea that we have to end up in an ultimate showdown no matter what it is. And maybe there's a lot of that issue when it comes to the current conflict with, with Russia and Ukraine or even China to, to a certain extent, too, is, you know, are we taking extrapolating, especially the World War II experience, uh, yeah. which we think of as this great crusade. And to a certain extent, it was, you know, of, of right versus wrong, good versus evil, but ex extrapolating that to all situations and right. ending up in every circumstance in a great, you know, crusade in wherever it is and where that could lead, uh, could lead the world, especially with a country as, as monumentally powerful as the United States. Yeah, I think I think that's a that's a perfect way to put it. I think the Second World War was crusading, and it was rightly so. Like there was a justified reason for that. Like it was it was a classic example of a just war, a good versus evil kind of fight. But it was also a very unique situation, and we kind of like try and impose that everyone wants to be a Churchill or a Roosevelt, and you know that's that's something which is which is a trap that we probably should avoid. Um, before we end, what books uh, are you reading on the First World War that you might want to recommend? to people yeah I, I think one what we kind of discussed early in the show that i think is very important uh to read is the sleepwalkers by by christopher clark uh i think is a really great laying out of you know he has his own thesis about you know how the war happened he kind of leans into well there were many many culprits rather than just german aggression i i think that's it's an important work as far as you know modern books on world war one yeah. um one i really enjoy I, I like I, as far as what the early days of World War One. I, I think it's a really excellent one is um, Catastrophe 1914 by Max Hastings. It does a really good job of highlighting good, yeah. the early days of, of World War One. The kind of, of course, the early days just, you know, as the war was just getting wound up. And of course, in that the, most of the casualties of the war took place largely in the first year of the war because of these great offensive campaigns and not right. really understanding the technology, you had just unreal casualties that took place. And of course the, the war developed more into the trench warfare. I think that we more think of when we think of world war one. Um, 
but I think it's a great book that kind of highlights the kind of mentality in Europe, the mentality of the various peoples that were involved in the crisis. And of course, those early days of mobilization and uncertainty uh, that were lead up to what at that time would have been the greatest war in all human history, the, 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 the great war. Um, what, what books uh, would you recommend uh, and that you are kind of reading for this topic? I, I absolutely would agree with the Christopher Clark sleep book. I think that's a that's a starting point for anyone who wants to have like a broad outline of how a continent essentially destroyed itself um, and a, an entire way of life just got wrecked because they just couldn't stop going down a path. I think that's a that's a book that everyone should start with. I would also like to agree, uh, add two more books. One which we sort of hinted at when we were talking. Uh, was by A.J.P. Taylor, The Struggle for Mastery in Europe, 1848 to 1918. I think that talked about this this railway thesis where everyone, no one actually wanted to go to war, but everyone was afraid to show that to the other side. I think that's a, that's a, that's an interesting dynamic that we kind of like need to understand today. And one book which is which is more academic than uh, historical is. Uh, Myths of Empire, Domestic polit Politics and International Ambition by Jack Snyder. Um, that book deals with two things, which is, I think, timely and topical. One is how overstretch uh, leads to imperial collapse. So if you're too much, you know, stretched out doing policing duties, other great powers sort of take advantage and rise up. So that's one of the aspects of it. And the second one is how much domestic politics sort of play into that one how much different lobbies and, you know, different powers can push you towards a war. So I think these are the three books that I would, I would recommend as well. Yeah, those are, those are great recommendations. I'd say for, to add kind of two more kind of peripheral issues to the war, I kind of mentioned earlier, the Walter Millis book, uh, the yeah. road to war, which offers kind of an alternative, uh, you know, kind of a, why the U S maybe shouldn't have entered world war one. I. I think it's an interesting look on the era of guy who actually wrote later that he thought we should enter uh, World War II. So he, right. he was kind of accused of being an isolationist. I think that's not quite correct. Uh, another interesting one that I, I picked up recently uh, was written by Christopher Lash, who I know is more known of as yeah. like almost a social scientist, but is about uh, American liberals and the Russian Revolution and how Americans viewed the Russian Revolution that took place during World War I, how they viewed that conflict. And I think it really gets into kind of the differences in mentality between East and West Americans and Russians and the differences and how the misunderstandings between those groups and how American liberals oftentimes do not understand Russia whatsoever. And yeah. Russia kind of has its own prerogatives and agendas that often operate outside our control and our understanding. And I think that's also a very good book that I picked up recently that maybe highlights some of the issues uh, surrounding World War One. Totally agree. That's great. Great representations. Yeah. We should we should probably like have a list of these books um, at the end of the episode anyway, just for the readers to sort of like go and have a look. Absolutely, uh, absolutely, and uh, thank you very much for for joining us. I think that this should be the end of this podcast. I think we covered a lot of the the important issues about uh, World War One and kind of what it means for both its own time, the calamities that happened in the twentieth century, and also and also today. And, and I think that uh, I think we've highlighted a lot of the issues surrounding that. I think it's uh, a good warning for for the future as far as not wanting to get into another great war uh, of this magnitude in our own time. Uh, Thank you, so, Jared. It was a pleasure. 
So thank you very much. And thank you for to the audience for listening today to History Reconsidered. Uh, join us next week for another great episode. Thank you very much.